Well, if you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And please do come up and say hi after the service uh, to either myself or somebody that has a, a name tag on. would love to get to know you. And we have a connect card you can fill out at efree.org slash connect if you want to learn more about the church and have us get in touch with you. And we'll make sure you have everything you need. We have lots of things for you. And uh, if you have a family for your family here at the church and would love to help you find out what those are and small groups forming and things like that that would love for you to be a part of as well. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, a book called The Acts of the Apostles, and we're working through this together. We're going to be in chapter 7 today, and I'm just going to warn you up front, it's a doozy, okay? Chapter 7 is a long chapter. We're not even going to tackle all of it today, but we will tackle the bulk of it. It's going to be a 50-verse section, so you may want to have your, your Bible out as we walk through that together. Before we do that, let me give you a little recap of last week. Last week, we talked about Stephen. This man who became the first Christian martyr, he was a deacon of the church, and he had some accusers bring false accusations against him, and he exemplified for us how to have faith over fear. So we talked about how he had this close walk with God, and how he had willing hands for God's work. He was willing to, to serve as a deacon and do different ministry, and he always spoke the truth even when it wasn't convenient. And then he didn't back down when he knew it was God's truth. And as a result of that not backing down, we talked last week about how he was brought forth with these charges and he communicated some very strong words eventually to the Jewish leaders who ultimately took him outside and had him stoned. And when they did that, they all laid their coats at the feet of a guy named Saul who would eventually become Paul the apostle. But before Saul trusted in Jesus, he was the guy they trusted to wash the coats while they killed Stephen. It's a, it's a tragic story. And a very sad story, but it's, it's also one that gives us a lot of inspiration and a lot of encouragement for us who sometimes struggle with having faith over fear. And last week I told you that we were kind of skipping over Stephen's long message. We went through chapter 6, which introduces us to Stephen. And then we sort of jumped over this big section of chapter 7 to get to the ending of that story of Stephen and how he's martyred. And I said this week we would cover that long message in between. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to take the section that we didn't do last week. We're going to cover it this week at this trial where Stephen has been falsely accused of a few different things of blaspheming Moses and the law of Moses and the temple and blaspheming God. And, and they brought these false accusations against him. And from those false accusations, we can discern what Stephen was actually teaching. It was the same thing that Jesus was teaching. That Jesus was the fulfillment of the old law and that there was an old covenant. And now Jesus was bringing this new covenant. And the, the, Jesus told the, the woman at the well, the time is coming when you're not going to worship God at the temple. You're going to worship him with the worship he really wants in spirit and in truth. The worship is going to be in our hearts. It's not going to be at some physical location. So this was the message of Jesus, and it was the message of Stephen. And these accusers against Stephen brought these lies to court, basically, against him to say that he was blaspheming the law of Moses, that he was saying they were going to end all the customs of Moses, that he was blaspheming the temple, that he was blaspheming God, when that's not really what was happening. They were twisting his words against him and taking something he actually said and adding enough of a lie to it that made it sound really, really bad. And maybe... At some point, you've been on the receiving end of something like that, where someone has taken your words and they've tweaked them just enough that it now means something different than what you actually said because they want to hurt your reputation or damage a relationship with a family member or something like that. Well, Stephen had the worst version of that possible. 
because when they twisted his words, it ended up leading to his death. And when I read this story, one of the things that pops into my head is if I'm putting myself in Stephen's shoes, this just seems incredibly unfair because uh, I want justice to take place. And if Stephen is telling the truth and he's right, I want the truth to come out. I want the truth to set him free. I want the truth to, to be validated here. And, and the fact that Stephen ends up losing his life just seems incredibly unfair. Why wouldn't God just step in and stop this? But you have to understand that while from our human perspective, we look at death as this horrible thing, from God's perspective, this is, as we sang earlier, a homecoming. This is Stephen getting to go be with God. In fact, he actually was given this glimpse of heaven and Jesus at God's right hand, standing to greet him as he comes into heaven. And so for Stephen, this wasn't a terrible event. For Stephen, this ended up being a wonderful event. And God has now used this story of Stephen over the last 2,000 years to inspire us and to teach us. And he'll do that again more today. So as we read through Stephen's message, this is his response to his accusers. Notice that Stephen doesn't come out with a defense right away. He doesn't come back and say, okay, you've accused me of these things. I made a list of them. Here is why you're wrong on this. No, I didn't say that. I said this. I didn't say that. I said this. He doesn't do that at all. What Stephen does is kind of hooks them with the beginning of a message, a sermon, if you will, that they're actually going to like at first. And then he tries to gradually show them why they're wrong along the way. But first, he leads into it with a lot of stuff that probably everyone there agrees with. And what I want you to do as we're reading through this and making some commentary along the way is put yourself in the shoes of those Jewish leaders who are hearing this. They really don't like this guy, but now they're hearing a lot of things that they do start to like. And I just want you to imagine yourself there in the room where it happened, as it were, and listening to what Stephen is saying as we read through a very long passage. There'll be a lot of reading scripture here. So in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, we're going to start in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, after a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word passed down to us so that we can learn from it. We understand, Lord, that some of this is descriptive history where we can learn what really happened. Some of your word has prescriptive instructions for us to follow. And sometimes there's a blending of the two. And while this is a historical account of Stephen's response, he was speaking truth by the power of your spirit. And so there are lessons for us to learn here. Help us to be open to that today, God. Help us to be receptive to what you want us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read it. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? The ones I just told you about against the law of Moses, against the temple, against God. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Very respectful start. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he was circumcised on the eighth day. 
And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob. And when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation, these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. It was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still some grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all of his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. Now, up until this point, what is Stephen doing? He's demonstrating that he knows the history of Israel well. In fact, he respects the history. He's a good Jewish boy who went to Torah school like good Jewish boys do. And he is demonstrating here that he got something out of it. He learned their history. And everybody in the room there is going, yep, yep, we agree with all this. This is good. In fact, it's probably the reason why they let him keep talking so long. They didn't cut him off. They didn't object to him because he's not saying anything objectionable. Everything he's saying is true. This is what we teach our kids. This is, this is exactly what he should be saying. In fact, maybe Stephen is, is trying to make a case that, that he actually is in total agreement with these guys. Maybe he's going to get to a point where he says, so I respect our tradition and our history. And I didn't, I didn't mean to say the things that they say that I said. And I'm not claiming that anything's changing with the law of Moses. I respect our tradition, and our history. They don't know where he's going with this. So they let him keep talking. And he goes on in verse 20. He says, at that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. Now pay special attention in these next several verses to how Stephen talks about Moses. All the different things he says about Moses. First, he says he was a beautiful child in God's eyes. Verse 21, when they had, a, had to abandon him, his parents, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. Again, praise for Moses, powerful in speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. And everybody in the room upon hearing this is like, yeah, that's right, he did. He got those Egyptians. Yeah, he defended our people of Israel. He's, he's again talking about how Moses is this great guy, a man of justice, a man of justice for Israel. Verse 25, Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Again, good guy, Moses, peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked, are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There, his two sons were born. 40 years later in the desert near Mount Sinai. 
An angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him and said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. So here is Moses, who Stephen has already said was a beautiful child in God's eyes. He was a man of justice. He was powerful in speech and in action. And, and here he has this special connection with God. God shows up specifically for Moses. Stephen is just acknowledging Moses as this great leader in Israel's past. And then he says, I have, oh, this is God speaking in verse 34. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go for, I am sending you back to Egypt. Moses was God's chosen savior for Israel to rescue them out of Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded who made you a ruler and judge over us. Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. Here's Moses falsely accused and rejected, but God set things straight and put him back in charge. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. So Moses here is even performing miracles. I mean, this is amazing. This is a very special guy. What's the point of all of this? The point is, does it sound like Stephen blasphemes Moses? Does it sound like Stephen disrespects Moses in any way? No, he has the highest esteem for Moses. What they are accusing him of is false. He has this incredible respect for Moses, but, but things take a turn in the next verse. Look at verse 37. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And now we get this first glimpse into what Stephen is doing. Up until now, everything he is saying is just, yes, we agree with that. Yes, this is good. Yes, this is good. Yes, all of that is true. And then, wait a minute. Moses said another prophet is coming. Another prophet like him. Stephen knows the history. He respects the history. But he's saying, even this great leader from our history, who you are accusing me of disrespecting, said, there's another one coming. There's a prophet that is going to come. We're going to get back to that later, but Stephen's going to go back to Moses for a minute. He says in verse 38, Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us, but our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, this is from Amos, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Raphan and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Stephen here is setting up this parallel between Moses and Jesus, just as the people rejected Moses on multiple occasions, they are now rejecting Jesus. And then he says, our ancestors carry the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. So now he's shifting gears a little bit. He's talked about Moses. He was accused of blaspheming Moses and saying that, that the customs of Moses would end and disrespecting Moses that way. 
And, and then he was also accused of blaspheming the temple. And here's what he says. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. So God instructed them, build a tabernacle. It's this tent structure, for the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that it would be in. And, and, and then years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. King David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Now, did you know that God never asked the Israelites to build a temple? The temple was not God's idea. The tabernacle was God instructed them to build the tabernacle, which was a relatively humble tent designed to show the people God is with you wherever you go. At the time, gods were viewed as being fairly regional. And so this area has its gods and they kind of stay in that area. And this area has its gods and they stay in that area. And so gods were sort of regional. And if you moved from one area to another, what was typical is you adopted the gods of the people that were in that area because that's a God that presided over that area, over that region. And this may not actually be just purely superstition because there are some scholars who think, and I think it's, it's actually kind of likely that there was demonic influence regionally based that led to this view that there were local gods that you served and you wanted to make sure that that God was on your side. And so there may actually be some real spiritual reality to a lot of the mythology that got turned into all these stories. Eventually, there may actually be some demonic influence that led to that. But see, what God wanted his people to know is even as you move from place to place to place, I'm sticking with you. You don't have to worship the new God of this area and the new God of this area. And so it was a movable tent on purpose to show God is with you as you go. And then eventually the tabernacle of Moses was replaced. David built a new tabernacle, a new tent. And eventually the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. David takes a crew. They recover the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it back. Instead of putting it back in Moses' tabernacle, this is when they build a new tabernacle that David sets up. And at this time, sometime after then, David builds himself a grand palace out of, out of cedars, probably shipped in from Lebanon. And he is sitting in his amazing palace, and he looks down at that tent that he built for the Ark of the Covenant, and he goes, man, what, what we have for God here is nothing compared to where I live. This isn't right. We need a grand palace for God. It wasn't God's idea. It was David's idea. David, excuse me. David went to the prophet Nathan. said, Nathan, here's the plan. Nathan said, yeah, sounds like a good idea to me. But that night, God shows up to Nathan and says, no, I don't want David doing that. I'll let his son do it. I won't let David do it because of all the, the wars and the violence and the, the mistakes there. And so we'll let his son Solomon built the temple. God allowed the temple to be built. He didn't ask for the temple to be built. That's a very important thing to consider. And even the reason the tabernacle existed, it wasn't to isolate God to a confined area. It wasn't to say you can only worship God in this area. It was to say God is with you as you go from land and region to region. So check this out in verse 48. Look how Stephen now makes this turn like he did with Moses. Moses said a prophet is coming. Now, look how he makes the turn about the temple. He says, however, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Those are fighting words in this day and age. Everybody hears that. And up until this point, they may have been tracking with them and they go, hold on. Wait, what are you saying? 
doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, this is from Isaiah 66. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? What is he saying here? Heaven is my throne. All you see, the stars and the glory. and the, you, you watch the images come back from the telescopes and you're just like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's God's throne. That's all, God's dwelling is everywhere. The earth, he says, is my footstool. That little place that you call the temple that's on the earth, that's just a, that's just a little bump on my footstool. That's nothing. The temple is a, is a place that in Israel had come to, to be viewed as, as the most sacred and holy place. It's not even a place God asked for. It was a, a human idea that wasn't all bad. It was good. It was good motivations. And there was a lot of great worship, that true, genuine worship of God that happened there over the years. But it was never God's plan to be isolated to a temple structure. That wasn't the point of any of that. And you can see what Stephen is doing now. He has gradually lured them in with information they would all agree on and then use that information to show them from their own prophets. Everything he said was verifiably true. All they had to do is go look it up in the scrolls. They didn't even need to. They had this stuff memorized. And they could know, wow, everything he's saying is actually right. It's true. And what was he saying? I have the utmost respect for Moses. I know Moses' biography. He gives him the CV. This is everything Moses has done. I, I love Moses, but there's something better than Moses. And even Moses said, there's a prophet who's coming later. There's another prophet, which means more is needed after Moses. Moses isn't enough. That's what that means. With the temple, Stephen has the utmost respect for the temple. He knows its history. He knows how it came from the tabernacle. He knows why it happened. He knows all of this. Utmost respect. There's something better than the temple. The temple is not all there is in the worship of God. God doesn't even live in a physical temple made by human hands. And even the prophet Isaiah declared that to us. And then you know from last week, if you, if you were with us for that message that Stephen goes on to accuse the Jewish leaders of doing the same thing to Jesus that their forefathers did to the prophets, and that is murdering them and how they murdered Jesus. And at that point, you may remember, they got very upset and they dragged him outside and they stoned him to death. We covered that last week. And so this week, I just want to focus on this message of Stephen. What are we to learn from it? What are we to learn from this big history lesson on Israel? And I'll be honest, when I first started studying this several weeks ago, my plan was to say, you know what? There's not much there other than the history of Israel. Let's just do a little lesson on the history of Israel. And we'll get into some of the details and how they moved here and there and what they did. And it'd be super educational and fun. And then as we got closer to today, I started to see some patterns emerge. And I started to see some points that I hadn't picked up on at first. And that's what I want to share with you. I want to share three things that are observations from Israel's history that then we can carry forward to evaluate our own lives today. So I hope you'll join me on that journey. Not like you have a lot of choice now. You're all sitting here. I mean, you could technically go, but those of you online, don't turn off the, you know. Number one, Israel's history shows God's extravagant grace. Israel's history shows God's extravagant grace. You go back to the first several verses of chapter seven, and what you see is God reaching down and saying, here's this guy, Abraham, who who believes in me, I'm going to make a covenant with him. Think about this. The God of the universe making a covenant with a, with a human, with one of his creation. The, the way the 
the gods were thought to have worked back then was you try to do things to sort of appease the gods and manipulate the gods into giving what you want. But the idea of a God coming to a human and saying, I'm going to be committed to you. I'm going to tie myself to you. I'm going to be faithful to you and your children. I'm going to make you into a great nation. That, that, that's crazy. There's no way a God would do that in, in the, the way they understood gods. And yet that's exactly what the God of Abraham did. He stepped in and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to commit myself to you. That's incredible. That's God's extravagant grace. Amazing. Then he raises up, first he rescues Joseph, who becomes a slave in Egypt. And then he raises up Joseph to become this great leader. And he uses Joseph to then rescue the rest of the family that was supposed to eventually become this great nation that God made this promise to a blessing. And again, it's God's grace that you see in Joseph's life. And then he rescues the people from Egypt when they become slaves there. And he brings them out of Egypt. And over and over, you see God's favor and God's blessing happen again and again. It's his extravagant grace poured out on this people who he made a covenant with. He took this one guy, Abraham, turned him into a great nation, his children, into a great nation that continues to exist as a cohesive national unit to this day. Think about the statistical odds of that when you compare that to the other nations of antiquity. Where are the Philistines today? Where are the Canaanites? Where are the Edomites? Where are the Babylonians? Where are all these ancient nations from thousands of years ago? They don't exist as cohesive units today because they merge and they get conquered and they just get assimilated into other groups. And yet here we have the Israelites who still maintain this heritage and national identity. That's God's extravagant grace poured out on this one guy, Abraham, and, and all of his children and his children's children. This family that we are now invited to be grafted into. It's God's grace. The second thing I want you to notice is that Israel's history shows cycles of rebellion and rejection against God. The history of Israel, you see this over and over again. Stephen just points out one example. After God brings the people out of slavery in Egypt, provides safe passage across the Red Sea, provides food and water for them, brings them the Ten Commandments, the people still chose to worship gods made of metal and to worship the stars. And we're not just talking about the golden calf in Mount Sinai, we're talking about the next 40 years because Amos, remember, Stephen quotes Amos, who says during that 40 years, you continued to worship false gods. After everything you saw, after the miracles, after the, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire and all these different things, all of that, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the destruction of the Egyptian army, all of this, you still continued to go back to pagan gods and serving false gods after all of that. And this was a cycle for Israel. They just kept doing this. There'd be, there'd be a group of, of Israelites who would follow God and obey him, and there'd be God's blessing, which was one of the promise of the prophets over and over. There'd be blessing if they followed him. And then a new generation would rise up, and evidently the parents didn't do a great job of, of training their children to follow God, or they just went their own way. And a whole new generation decides, you know what? We're going to go follow these pagan gods over here. Forget, forget the God of our fathers. And then there's discipline and judgment and exile. And then a new generation comes up who rediscovers this retro thing, this faith of their forefathers. And they go back to obedience again. And there's the blessing of God in this cycle of rebellion and rejection that happens over and over again in Israel's history. The third thing I want you to see is Israel's history shows a tendency to elevate traditions into idols. Israel's history shows a tendency to elevate 
traditions into idols. The temple is a great example of this. The temple was not instituted by God. It was a man-made thing, not a bad idea. It was good to have a very nice place to worship God. But what happened over the hundreds of years that the temple was in place, over the multiple iterations of the temple? We have all these rituals and methodologies that build up around that. You have these different ideas about the different courts, uh, you know, court of the Gentiles and court of the Jews and, and different practices that were implemented. Lots of them not instructed by God, but sort of man-made. And, and many of them with a the desire to show reverence and the sacredness of this, but they didn't all come from God. And so eventually this tradition of the temple became their God. There was more worship happening around the rituals and the structure of the temple itself that wasn't actually directed at the real God who it was meant to represent. And so they elevated traditions into idols. They confused their traditional methodology of worship with actually being the divine thing itself. So how does this apply to us? What can we take away from this? Well, I think as we look at Israel's history, with these three particular examples, we see on a macro level what exists in our life on a micro level. We see the same things in our life. And I, what I want to do is pose some questions to you and just have you think about this for a minute and evaluate your own life, your own story. What's in your story is the question I want to leave you with today. Think back over your life. When have you seen God's extravagant grace show up in your life like he did for the people of Israel? When have you seen God's extravagant grace? Maybe it's at a time when things were going very poorly for you and God stepped in and showed you, hey, I still care about you. I'm still with you. Maybe it's at a time when things were going well and all of a sudden just this incredible blessing got dropped in your lap and you just went, oh, thank you, God. This is, this is fantastic. But I'm sure everyone here can point to times where you look back and think, I think that was God at work in my life. That, that's God's extravagant grace. How about in your story, do you have any cycles of rebellion and rejection of God? Do you have times where you have known the right thing to do, but you've chosen to do the wrong thing anyway? Maybe there has even been some consequences or some discipline that has come with that. And was God faithful to forgive you, to give you a second chance? Maybe some of you are in that cycle right now. Maybe you don't even know why you're here today. Maybe you don't know why you turned this on, on online today. But you're in that cycle of rebellion and rejecting God, and it's time to come out of it and say, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I don't want to live this way anymore. We all have those kind of cycles that we get into, just like Israel did, where we rebel and reject God. But God is so gracious and so merciful that he gives us many second chances. And finally, are there any traditions or desires in your life that you've allowed to, not intentionally, but almost without noticing become idols for you where we end up worshiping the methodology more than the God that they are meant to honor and revere. This is something that I think is important for churches to routinely be reminded of for all of us to remember. And now is a great time to do it because it's right here in the text. And also there is no big announcement coming at today's service about some major thing we want to change. That would be the wrong time. To suddenly say, now everybody, remember, it's just a preference. But there's nothing like that. 
going on. There's no major issue that we're going to be changing today. It's just here in the text. This is something that churches and, and followers of God constantly struggle with, where we find ourselves thinking that the way we do something is the sacred thing itself. That was the problem the Israelites had. Everything to do with the temple, everything was wrapped up in the temple, and they forgot the temple didn't even come from God. The temple came from David and Solomon. God allowed it. That's great. God allows us to do a lot of things in different ways. Think about the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in a minute here. Do you think this is how Jesus did it? Not at all. Jesus did it with one cup passed to every person. Can you imagine in a post-COVID world, one cup every person? I know some churches do it that way. Ugh, that was gross before COVID. Now we're all germaphobes. No way. And one piece of bread that gets passed around and broken up to different people. The way Jesus did it was completely different. Uh, real bread, not a cracker. Real wine, not juice. The methodology can change. The point remains the same. The purpose remains the same. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he didn't exactly spell out all the ways to do it. He didn't say you had to get around a big table in a circle and pass it around clockwise or else it didn't count. But we come up with all these rituals and all these traditions. And then when one of those changes, here's where it really get, becomes a problem. It's not wrong to have a preference. It's not wrong to say, oh, I really liked it that way. The problem is when we assign whoever's making the change sin. And we say it's wrong to change this. Why? Because it feels wrong. Why does it feel wrong? Because I'm not used to it. Because it's tradition for me. Now we know that the tradition has become an idol. And we just have to be constantly reminded of that. There was a time where Jenny and I were evaluating, are we going to be in ministry at an existing church or are we going to go plant a new church? And so I did a lot of research on church planting. And one of the things that I found with church plants is that for the first five years of a church plant, everything's really good. And everybody gets along because there are no established traditions to threaten. And people don't have certain ways of doing things, methodologies that you're messing with. And so the church is just creating new methodologies and new rituals and new traditions. But after about five years, that's when you start to hit the bumps. Because then when you do change something, you, what you don't realize is that church planning pastor is that for the last five years, you've got a whole group of people that have been thinking, this is how we do things. And this is the only way to do things. This is the methodology that's sacred here. And then when you start to change stuff in your own church that you planted and you start to run into all sorts of opposition because you don't realize you have created traditions and rituals that people don't want to get away from. And one of the advice, one of the pieces of advice given by veteran pastors was make sure your new church plan understands methodologies are not sacred. It's God that's sacred, worshiping God that's sacred. He is the object, as Jeff said earlier, the object of our worship. It's not about us. When traditions become idols, it's a dangerous thing. That's exactly what happened for many of the Jewish people. Not all, not all. In Acts chapter 17, today we're in Acts 7, in Acts chapter 17, 10 chapters later, so 10 years later for us in this sermon series. I'm just kidding. If you're new, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It'll be later this year. But in Acts chapter 17, we're going to get introduced to a group of people who Paul and Silas go into their synagogue and they start teaching about Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He brings the new covenant. Worship is no longer in the temple, but it's in our hearts. And these people, instead of dragging them out and stoning them, they go back to their scrolls and they go, huh, this is different. We've never heard this before. Let's go check our sacred scriptures and let's see what God actually said. And they search the scriptures, the Bible says, to see if these things were so. And what they discovered was not only 
are, is the message that Paul and Silas bringing not contradictory to those things that we see in our scriptures and our scrolls, but actually our scrolls support this coming. We see it now. We see the prediction of the new prophet. We see the prediction of the covenant fulfilled. We see the prediction of all these things happening. And so they believed. These Jewish people recognized it. They didn't hold to their traditions. They held to sacred scriptures. And they believed the message. That was in a place called Berea. And so if you ever see a church called Berea, that's why they want to search the scriptures to see if these are scriptures. So here's the point. Whenever we get confused between what is a tradition that we are comfortable with and what is God's actual practice he wants for us, we have to go back to God's word and say, what did God actually say? Doesn't mean it's wrong to have preferences, desires, traditions. They're all great. But we hold those things loosely while we hold to what God has actually given us very tightly. I want to pray for us now. If you'd bow your heads with me, take a moment, reflect on the message today. Also, I want to note that there's a discussion guide available to go deeper after the service at efreeorg slash discussion. Let's pray as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this word that's been passed down to us. We thank you for the testimony of Stephen and his response. Certainly not the response that I would give in defense of all these accusations. And yet we see so much great truth represented in it. We see Israel's history. We see your grace. We see their rebellion. We see their failure to recognize what you were doing, a new thing, something new, something different, something fresh that would reach so many more people with your grace and your love. And many of them failed to recognize it because they made idols out of the wrong things that seemed like good things. And Lord, sometimes in my life, I do the same thing. I get caught in certain patterns and habits. I'm sure all of us can relate to that. God, I pray that you'd help us to examine our lives right now. It's a perfect time to do it as we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. Help us to see your grace in our lives. Bring to mind those times when we've rebelled against you, not so that we can wallow in them because you've already forgiven us for that, but so that we can remember and be thankful for your forgiveness or maybe get things right with you right now. And help us to be aware of those little things where we can become centered on a methodology instead of our maker. Help us to, to see those traditions that have become like idols to us, not to get rid of them, but just to put them in their proper place so that our worship is going where it really belongs, to you, our creator and our savior. We thank you, Lord, for what you did for us by coming and dying for us on the cross so that we could have this relationship with you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're new here, I do want to go over our methodology for the Lord's Supper. Probably a good thing to do. As we pass the elements, you'll find a stack of two cups. You'll want to take both of them. The bottom is the bread, which represents the body of Christ. The top is the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. We will be taking the bread first. So you may want to go ahead and separate those as you receive them. If you're a follower of Jesus, no matter what church you normally go to, we welcome you to take part in this with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to just let it pass you by. This really is only for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and committed their lives to following him. If you need gluten-free wafers, they're available in the middle of the trays. And you can grab one of those if there aren't enough, flag down an usher, and they will get some to you. This is a great time for you to think about that question, what's in my story? 
And it's also a great time for you to confess any sin to God and just get your heart in the right place to truly worship him authentically through this time of practicing communion, this practice that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago. If you're at home right now, this would be the time to pause the video and go grab something to represent the bread, something to represent the blood so that you can resume it in a minute and take communion with us. Let's all prepare our hearts. I believe that everyone has been served or we're very close to that point. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul talks about the Lord's Supper and how this was passed on to him and how he passes it on. And we will continue to do it today. We'll start with taking the bread. Paul says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me.